I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GCD became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Love Hour podcast. I am your host, Ms. Kevlin Stage, Melissa Fredericks, and we are continuing our infertility series, which actually is having the impact that I thought it would. So I'm really um, happy for those people that this has impacted and affected that they were able to find um, and feel seen and their voices and the, the pain that they go through is being seen and acknowledged. So what we're going to do today is I have Dr. Anu Katharizen, um, from, you're from Texas, right? So I'm originally from Georgia, but I currently live in Texas. Yeah. Okay. So got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He is in the Houston, Texas area. Um, I will actually stop talking and allow you to um, introduce yourself and your area of expertise. Sure. So I'm a new Catherison, and thank you for having me. Um, and I am a fertility physician in Houston, Texas, and I work at a practice called Center of Reproductive Medicine. Um, I specialize in any um, topics really related to infertility, so PCOS, um, endometriosis, um, IDF, uh, also egg freezing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, a summary of me. Got it. What did? What was the last one you said? Egg freezing. Oh, egg freezing. Got it. Got it. Got it. Oh, that came up quite a bit too. That's a topic people are definitely really interested in. So what we're going to do for today's episode is I pulled our, the audience to um, basically send me all the questions, all the questions that they had about infertility and the whole process. And we've received like a whole gamut of questions. And so what we're going to do um, today is basically go through and honor I mean, not ask those questions of Dr. Katherizen. So what we're going to do is kind of cover them from what I believe I received, not even I believe, the most requests were, and then kind of filter down to the, the questions that were kind of on the, I didn't receive as many requests. And if we can get that far, we can get that far, because I do have another doctor I'm going to interview as well. So I can have her be the, the part two. But since um, Dr. Katherizen is here, she received those questions, we're going to go ahead and start. All right, question number one, and this is probably the biggest question. What is endometriosis? How does it impact for infertility or fertility? And what can I, those, those secondary questions are like for the next three or four topics. What can I do about it? How does that impact it? Is there anything I can do to prevent it, make it go away? If I don't have it, is there a way to ensure I don't get it in the future? All of those type of questions. 
Sure, so endometriosis is one of the toughest diagnoses we have to manage. Um, so basically when you think of the uterus, there are um, three kind of linings, the outside of the uterus, the serosa, the inner muscle, and then the inside of the uterus called the endometrium. So that's the lining of the uterus that sheds once a month, it responds to the hormonal changes in your body, and you know ultimately results in the shedding that happens once a month. So those cells are called endometrial cells, um, are very specialized cells that um, can sometimes be in other places in the pelvis. So it can be in the ovary, it can be um, on the bowel, um, it can be on the bladder, it can be just in the pelvic lining. And so if you can imagine those cells being where they're not supposed to be elsewhere in the pelvis, responding to those hormonal changes, that can cause pain with period, it can cause pain with intercourse, usually with like deep penetration, that type of pain that patients experience with intercourse. And um, so those are the most common symptoms and that's an overall um, description of it. So how does it impact fertility? So there are kind of two main mechanisms. So one is that it can cause adhesions in the pelvis and that can ultimately cause distortion of the pelvic anatomy. So it can um, distort the tubes, the fallopian tubes, which is where the egg and sperm will meet and, and embryos create and then the embryo will ultimately travel into the uterus. So if there's distorted tubes that can affect um, that transport system, it can also affect the um, egg and sperm quality. So um, that's one way it can impact infertility. Another way is that it's associated with immune cells, just there being more immune cells in the pelvis. And again, those um, immune factors having an adverse effect on the egg, the sperm, the embryo, and um, tubal transport. Okay, I want to make sure because I'm visual and I'm like literally imagining everything that you're saying in my mind. So what you're basically saying is you have your fallopian tube and is it called like an endometrious cell? Um, so it's the endometrium or endometrial cells that okay. are usually in the inside of the uterus. Okay, so when they're elsewhere, it's almost like a roadblock to the sperm and the egg getting to where it needs to be. Yeah, I kind of think of it as like, you know, if you're menstruating in these different places, right, like in the ovary. So sometimes you'll see like a little cyst with um, uh, like a chocolate, uh, what we call chocolate cyst or endometrioma. So it's almost like you're menstruating into that, you know, ovary and it causes this buildup of blood. Um, and then when it's in the pelvis, it just can cause adhesions and scarring. And so it's just, and you know, how pregnancy usually happens is, you know, once a month an egg is going to be released from the ovary and then hopefully intercourse will happen at the same time. And then the egg and sperm, so the sperm will travel through the uterus and into the tube. And then after the egg is released, they both meet in the tube and then it becomes an embryo and then the embryo will travel and then implant into the uterus. So that scarring is just basically, um, you know, impacting that, that transport as well as also um, the function of the egg and sperm potentially. Oh, did you have a question? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So when you were going through and you're removing endometriosis or these cells, you're removing them from the places in which they're not supposed to be. And then how do you do that with the scarring? So, so that's a kind of a complex question. So how do you treat, yeah, how do you treat endometriosis? So when it, so we kind of think of it as, are we treating pain associated with endometriosis or infertility? So I primarily deal with, you know, pain uh, or sorry, the infertility aspect of it, but you have patients also like that see the OBGYN that are just suffering from the pain aspect of it. And so um, they'll go to the OBGYN and some of the um, common first line treatments are going to be like Motrin or strong dose NSAIDs. 
um, and birth control pills. And that the, the theory with that is it suppresses your cycle. So it, it suppresses ovulation and all those normal mechanics that would happen. So hopefully that might help treat, you know, um, the endometriosis, the pain associated with it. There's other treatment options like um, Lubron and, and basically other things to suppress ovulation. But when it comes to fertility, that contradicts what we want right, right. that's not what i want done <laughs> exactly so we can't use these medical management so it really leaves us only with two options which is fertility treatment so things like iui and ivf or surgery and so that's also a complex decision like how do you make the choice of what you know decision you're going to offer the patient and so many things will factor in like for example the woman's age her ovarian function, um, the patient, if they're having pain, severe pain, um, just like your level of suspicion of how severe the endometriosis may be. Maybe they have an endometrioma on ultrasound, and that's usually a more advanced stage of endometriosis. And, um, and you know, age and, and their ovarian function are kind of two big ones. So, you know, we worry about the compounding effect of age itself and, mm -hmm. you know, ovarian function. Now compound that with endometriosis. So if I have, you know, an older um, woman, now I'm even more worried. So we tend to lean towards more aggressive fertility treatment options. Um, you know, with surgery, it is an option. It's just that, um, you know, there have been some studies that looked at, so endometriosis is staged and stage one and two kind of being the more mild form and then stage three and four. And so we kind of group them into the more mild and then more severe form. So the milder forms, uh, you can consider surgery in these patients or just doing maybe IUI um, in these um, patients. The disadvantage of surgery is that some studies show that you had to treat potentially like 12 patients. So do surgery on 12 patients mm -hmm. to get one patient pregnant. And so that's, you know, not, really great numbers. And then if you also kind of include a group of asymptomatic unexplained infertility patients, so there's unexplained infertility that maybe they have endometriosis and we don't know. The only way to diagnose it is actually with surgery, but we don't do surgery on everybody, right? So if you group those people in, then it ends up being you have to do surgery on 40 patients to get one additional pregnancy. So surgery, you know, it is an option, but it's not necessarily kind of our go-to option. But again, it, it's it's a complex decision and you have to factor in the individual patient characteristics, right? If they're suffering from severe pain. And so, um, so it's, yeah, so that's kind of an explanation of it. Wow. Does this disproportionately affect Black women? So, you know, I would say fibroids, there, there is more evidence of that. Um, for endometriosis, I'm not actually, um, I'm not certain that there's an increased prevalence in um, Black women, so. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's go to fibroids next. Yeah. I thought that was a really good explanation for um, endometriosis. It definitely schooled me on more than, I, lo I briefly looked up a video, actually it may have been your video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking about endometriosis and I was trying to like understand it but hearing you explain it I think coupled with that visual kind of helped me um, kind of explain it oh let me ask this question for those women that are suffering with actually I don't want to ask that question people should go talk to their doctor I don't want to give like false hope or I also don't want to crush hope either so um, I won't ask that question <laughs> uh, so let's go to fibroids uh, this is huge this is huge it is actually something that i was 
completely unaware of until I did my four women only series. And then I understand how prevalent it is and how common it is. So before I go down too deep, can you explain what fibroids is? And then even if you know, why does it affect black women more? Why is it more common with black women than anyone? If, if there's a like scientific reason why, why that is. And then of course, how does it impact fertility and um, what people can do about it? So fibroids are an overgrowth of the muscle tissue in the uterus, and so and they're benign, and um, they can the the association with African American women. I don't think we really know the answer to that. You know, for a lot of these conditions, they're multifactorial. Different etiologies can contribute. Genetics is a big one. So, um, but uh, yeah, but it is very common in African American um, women, and um, so how they impact fertility. So again, fibroids. I think of the uterus, and I think of the fibroids in essentially three different locations. So on the outside of the uterus called subserosal fibroids, in the muscle of the uterus called intramural fibroids, and then when they're actually impacting the cavity, um, and those are called submucosal or intracavitary fibroids. So for sure, um, the fibroids in the cavity, the submucosal or intracavitary fibroids, the recommendation is to remove them. Um, and fibroids can be associated with uh, lowering pregnancy rates and increasing miscarriage rates. So um, for that's very clear cut, you know, if they're in the cavity to remove them. If they're outside and they're in the subserosal part of the uterus, we actually leave them alone because they're not really impacting the right. inside, you know. If they're in the muscle, those are a little bit gray zone and it depends is um, the answer. So it depends on the location of the fibroid and the size. So generally, if they're impacting the cavity, they're storing the cavity, you know, if they're a good size, like let's say three to four centimeters, and then it's shifting the inside part of the uterus, then we um, will consider removing them. But if they're small, let's say, you know, one centimeter fibroids in the muscle, not really affecting the inside of the uterus, we leave them alone. Got it. Um, okay, this is a great spot to take a break and hear word from our sponsors. We took a break to tell you about BetterHelp. That's help, H-E-L-P. And this is really important because in today's world and everything that's going on and all of the trauma that we're experiencing, whether that be through COVID-19 or from the civil unrest, you need someone to talk this over and talk this through with. It's the only way to get through um, these very trying times mm -hmm. without coming out with some sort of, I mean, we're all going to be impacted, but the best you can do is talk to someone and ensure that you get the help that you need. BetterHelp is great. I actually use their app you I found do. myself a um, counselor I already told you guys last week that I'm still on the hunt to find the perfect match but that's one of the things that's really great about this is that you can start communicating with a counselor within 48 hours of signing up and you have the option of picking who you think would be a perfect match for you interviewing them essentially doing a little trial session with them and then deciding yes this is a match I want to continue seeing you or no this isn't a match and I'm going to find someone else and there's none of that awkwardness of like going into their office and that yeah, kind of thing yeah if you're interested, you can sign up today by visiting betterhelp.com slash love hour. Love hour. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join over the one million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 oh, yeah? states. That's actually amazing. And if you are a person of color, if you are black, 
and you're listening to this, I highly recommend that you get on this app because black people, me, Melissa, Kevin, we want our counselors to look like us so that way they can have empathy for the issues that we face. A special offer for the Love Hour listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Love Hour. Love Hour. One more time, 10% off your first month, BetterHelp.com slash Love Hour. Love Hour. Take charge of your mental health. It's really important. Something you should do. Make sure you do it. Get the 10% off. All right. So we're back. We just finished off with um, fibroids. I feel like for a lot of people who have fibroids, they just end up getting surgery. And it seems like a lot of people are like, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I want to do. Are there any, what are the alternatives to um, curing, I guess, or getting rid of your fibroids other than surgery? So good question. And it's actually very similar to endometriosis. So some of the medical managements are going to be things like birth control pills, like hormonal treatments. And it contradicts what we're trying to do with fertility. So it minimizes our options when it comes to fibroids. So surgery is really um, our only option uh, when it comes to fibroids. But it really, again, depends on the location. So if it's a fibroid that's not causing any trouble and not on the outside of the uterus, then you know we wouldn't recommend surgery. Got it. So this really comes down to um, like what the end goal is. So if you're just talking about maybe fertility, you, you've already had your children or you don't want children, whatever that case may be. If you're struggling with pain, then, then you can potentially go the route where maybe surgery isn't required or necessary. And even for endometriosis, go ahead. Right. Yeah. So same with fibroids. If, if, so that fibroids can present with um, pain with bleeding or um, pain with intercourse or just kind of general pain. Um, and so, yeah, medical management is always our first line treatment option for, um, you know, endometriosis and fibroids. We want to do what the most conservative thing would be. We don't necessarily jump to surgery, but if medical management fails, then, you know, we're left with surgery um, when it comes to the pain aspect of it. Got it. I um I have a question um with um darn it it's gone (laughs) I had it and I was trying to wait for I was trying to wait for a moment to to sneak it in and and my I had only so much time and it it ran away from me when that happens (laughs) okay Um, oh oh got it got got it it. (laughs) Uh, in a lot of these episodes we've heard from a lot of women and doctors and just kind of learning about this uh this is often missed in in uh, doctors or in in treatments do you know do you have any insight into why it's often not uh not recognized early or wh- why women go a couple of times before a person recognizes it for for fibroids or for endometriosis I was, for, 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 oh, fibroids i feel like fibroids is easier it's usually endometriosis that's missed Yes, I would agree with that. So, um, (laughs) so yeah, generally, if a patient comes to see us um, at the fertility clinic, part of our first evaluation is going to be doing an ultrasound. And in an ultrasound, we're looking for any abnormalities in the uterus, including fibroids. So they're generally picked up um, at that visit. For endometriosis, that is a harder um, animal. So it is really only diagnosed by surgery. So you know, ultrasounds may not get it, MRI may not get um, it. What's the, the, the surgery where you go to look around? Is it arthroscopic or something? It's laparoscopy. It's putting a camera. That's what it was. Yeah. I was trying to think of that one. Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly is putting a camera in and um, yes. then abdomen and then looking in the pelvis for it. It usually has um, kind of a brownish or reddish, you know, appearance. You'll see these little lesions and potentially adhesions if it's severe. So the frustrating thing with endometriosis is you can have patients with really severe symptoms, like severe pain with um, periods and pain with intercourse and maybe not have that much disease in the pelvis. And vice versa, you can have some patients that have no symptoms and have really severe disease. So symptoms and what you see surgically don't always coincide. Um, so endometriosis, um, and that's why they can kind of overlap in a way with that unexplained infertility group, you know, because they may have it maybe microscopic and, you know, you, uh, even if you do surgery, sometimes it is microscopic and it's not visible because um, it's so small. So it's um, sometimes visible and evident and sometimes not. So it can be a hard thing to, to um, diagnose. And we don't necessarily want to take everybody to surgery because surgery comes with risk. And um, doing any surgery on the ovary also will diminish, uh, will decrease potentially their ovarian function. So, um, you know, sometimes we don't know if they have it because, you know, we haven't done necessarily surgery on every patient. Are either of those, either of these endometriosis or fibroids, are they more common in a certain age in, in women? I would say um, things like uh, fibroids and polyps can um, increase as we get older, like the prevalence of them getting increased as we get older. Um, endometriosis, um, I wouldn't say so necessarily, um, but uh, I mean, they can be present in all age groups though. Okay, because wow. I feel like as we've gotten older, this has been a more common conversation, but when we were like 18, 22, it wasn't as much. I remember my mom and her friends talking about it when I was, younger you know and they're probably in their 40s like i wasn't supposed to be paying attention but they talked about i wonder if it's because as you get into childbearing age that's when it's really uh, yeah, yeah i would kind of agree with that too yeah okay nice uh or not nice that um <laughs> i know i meant nice like this is really great information yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, this is not nice. I, uh, I, I mean it felt inappropriate yeah what I was going to say, though, is that endometriosis sucks. It that sucks. And then for the only way to um, like properly diagnose it is through surgery. But you take a risk because what if that's not really the problem at all? Like that's kind of. Yeah, you may or may not see it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, back in the day, uh, a laparoscopy was considered a routine part of the infertility workup, but it no longer really is. Just because, you know, the treatment options we may offer, you know, it may not benefit, you know, doing the surgery, you know, be of any benefit, and we may end up doing the same, you know, fertility treatment, so. Uh, I'm sorry. All right, let's move to PCOS, which is... I'm going to let you say it because I don't want to say it wrong. Cystic <laughs> polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes. Okay. I was going to get it right. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Again, all the same questions. So polycystic ovarian syndrome. So a common misconception is that it is this disorder, a discrete disorder that causes um, ovulation dysfunction. And really it, it's a common pathway for a chronic anovulatory state. So meaning like um, there are many causes of ovulation dysfunction, for example, thyroid disorder, prolactin disorder, um, uh, such as, you know, these are kind of um, a few examples. So there are many different causes, but ultimately 
leading to a patient not ovulating. And regardless of the cause, PCOS is that chronic anovulatory state. So it can be due to, you know, many different things. Got it. Um, and so I also kind of describe to patients what happens in a normal menstrual cycle. So what normally happens at the beginning of the cycle is the brain tells the ovary, the brain produces FSH, tells the ovary, okay, it's time to grow a follicle. So the ovary will start to grow a follicle and that follicle is producing estrogen. There's a certain level, once the follicle gets the right size, there's a certain level of estrogen that's reached that goes back to the brain, tells the brain, okay, it's time to ovulate. And then that brain will make LH surge. And that's what we detect for on the ovulation predictor kits. And then ovulation should occur around like 24 hours or so after that surge. So those are kind of some of the normal dynamics that happen in a normal menstrual cycle. So with PCOS, those dynamics don't happen. And instead you see this kind of steady state of LH. It doesn't, you know, fluctuate or vary. Same thing with the FSH, same thing with the estrogen level. So ultimately the patient's not ovulating and that's the main cause for um, difficulty getting pregnant because they're not releasing that egg. Okay. So what you're saying is, and this is just me gurgitating what you're saying to make sure I understand. And then also for people listening to make sure you understand as well. So what you're basically saying is PCOS is like a broader term and the cause of it are these multiple, um, like it can be multiple avenues that's causing you not to ovulate, but it all trees up to the term of PCOS. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. I didn't realize that your brain told your body. I don't know why I didn't realize it, but I didn't realize that it was like your brain saying, hey girl, go do your thing. All right. Now it's time to go do this. I felt like your body was just like doing it. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, we, we didn't learn it and understand it really until our training, you know? So um, I think it's a common thing that people really don't know, you know, the dynamics yeah. of the menstrual cycle. So. Got it. So then when that, so when your body is not um, ovulating, then that's obviously going, you're going to have a hard time getting, getting pregnant. pregnant. Exactly. Yeah. So when you, are, are, maybe I misunderstood, if that's not happening, are they, are they not having periods or is there just no egg release during a period and their body's still shedding like there was an egg release? Yeah, so they often will have a regular cycle. So just kind of sporadic bleeding, essentially the lining. So now if we're focusing on the lining part of the, you know, what happens with the menstrual cycle as that estrogen is being produced from the follicle, the lining will get thick and thicker and thick. Remember and the then, period doctor said yeah, this. Yeah. 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 And so then what happens after ovulation where the follicle ovulated, right? Now what's left is what's called a corpus luteum. And that's the remnant of the follicle that ovulated. That corpus luteum is making estrogen and progesterone and um, ultimately to support a possible pregnancy that, you know, could implant. So the lining now gets that progesterone effect. And then let's say the patient doesn't get pregnant, that corpus luteum has a certain lifespan. So after the about two weeks, it will regress. The estrogen and, uh, estrogen and progesterone production will go down. And then that's what signifies the period. So now, uh, and that's you know when they'll uh, have their menses, is basically a response to that lack of hormones. Right, right, so right. in a PCOS patient, what the lining is seeing is just a chronic low-level estrogen production, that steady state of estrogen. It never will see the progesterone because ovulation doesn't happen. And so as that lining just thickens and thickens and thickens, eventually it'll just like shed a little bit, you know, because it is just getting thick and thick and thick. It doesn't know what else to do. You know, at some point at a certain thickness, it'll just have breakthrough bleeding, just random bleeding. So, and so that would, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, that's, that's all I was going to say. And oh, so, so is a common symptom of PCOS, regardless of how it, it, the result of it is, um, irregular periods? 
Irregular bleeding, yeah. Regular yeah. bleeding. Yeah. So if you're not, is it, you know, like your uh, period is over, you know, I don't know, three to seven days. Uh, with this, is it just like, for lack of better understanding and ignorance, is more like spotting here and there with no no rhyme or reason? Does it feel like it, that? It can be. It can be. It can be like these really heavy bleeds, maybe like every two, three months. Um, sometimes patients actually even don't have um, periods like for, for a year or something like that. So it, it's very sporadic and can vary. Um, so the important thing to know, what is like the definition of the normal period? So anywhere between a frequency really, this is the, you know, is the important thing. So anywhere between 21, 21 and 35 days is what's considered a normal period. So anything that falls out of that range in terms of frequency, sometimes patients have bleeding every 10 days, you know, so that again, it's irregular. So more commonly with PCOS patients, we see them having oligomenorrhea, which is uh, less frequent bleeding. So every two to three months or, you know, long, long intervals of time. Are, is it common or possible to have multi, like more of these than once, like endometriosis and fibroids or PCOS and fibroids? Is that a thing you see? We do. So yeah, sometimes um, with infertility, you know, the workup will look at, you know, the uterus, the tubes, the sperm and the eggs. And sometimes there are multiple factors, you know, involved in their infertility. And the more factors involved, the more we worry about, um, you know, the chances okay. Receiving and potentially being more aggressive with fertility treatments. One of the things while you were talking, um, I just want to recommend not sponsored, but an app that I actually use. It's Flow. It's F L O, and it's actually a um, a period tracking app. So for any of those people that are out there and like want to start tracking their period, whether it's for infertility or, or fertility purposes or not, um, sometimes it's just good to know when you plan your vacations. Listen. Uh, <laughs> Like, what is the likelihood of this happening? I'm trying to pull it up. Hold on just a second, because I want to show you guys. It goes to, um, it has cycle length on here, which is basically what you were talking about, which is basically the interval. So it'll tell you, like, my average cycle length is 20 days. So I really typically get my cycle about every 20 to 21 days. And then it tells you um, how long they last too. So it has period length and it tells me like mine is on average six days. So that kind of stuff, when you were talking, I was like, okay, so what's my average? Cause I already know this. What's my average. Okay. So I'm on the lower end of average, but I'm still average. Okay. Six, you know what I mean? It just helps you. Um, so when you go to the doctor, you have, um, that information like readily available. Cause it tracks, I've been using this for a very much a long time, probably a year and a half, almost two years now. Um, and it's just a, 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 a tool that you can use if you're going to your doctor, if you have some questions or whatever, they can use this as a way of like, you know, maybe we should do some testing. This gives me some information, a baseline information for what's like standard for you. And you can tell if that's normal, quote unquote. Yep. And that will be part of the standard infertility evaluation. You know, one of the first questions we ask, how, how are your cycles? How regular are they? So that's an important part of it. And usually we don't be knowing. I know. <laughs> like typically, I feel this has made me way more aware 
of what's normal for me and what's not that I can track it. But before you're just like, I mean, I feel like I get it, you know, I like know. every I, I would be knowing more than she did. Listen, Fred. I was like, oh girl, you you little bit early. You a little bit late. <laughs> I feel like I feel like my body tells me where like you know, like, okay, this I can feel this is about to come down. Like you can just tell, but to say to someone, how often do you get it? I feel like I would be like, girl, like every day it feels like I don't know what to tell you. This gives you like, and also you got the premenstrual symptoms, and and you know there's so much going on in there. It feels like it's a like a cycle that just comes and goes, and bleeding is part of the cycle. But you got premenstrual symptoms, and you've got bloating, irritation. Sometimes you have, you know, yeah, he talks about like he know, don't he? I know, I know. <laughs> that really is an understanding of a cycle that for me, it's not. You're like I thought a cycle was just oh, this is the week. But if this happens and then that happens the week prior, you might having some symptoms up to 10 days prior. So, yeah. you know, I've learned so much from this podcast. I know. <laughs> Thank you for sitting on here with me. All right, this is a great place to take a break. All right, we're taking a break here to tell you about Ship Station. Yes. If you are an entrepreneur and you're in these trying times that we're in, as we've mentioned, you're probably looking around trying to make sure that you are staying afloat finding some way to generate some revenue. One way to do that is through merchandise. Mm. Everybody has some sort of t-shirt that they are selling these days. Masks, like we have, God blocked it. Gold grills, available right now, $15, and we're gonna get it to you using Ship Station. Station. Ship Station works with all major carriers from USPS, FedEx, UPS, and even Amazon Fulfillment. People sleep on Amazon Fulfillment, but listen, child. This makes it easy for you, okay? <laughs> uh, what is great is they also can be fully integrated into your website, whether that's Etsy or, again, your own personal website. They make it really simple, really easy, so you can uh, sell on multiple platforms and bring all of those into one platform. Right now, the Love Hour listeners can try ShipStation for free for 60 days when you use offer code LOVE. Love! Make sure your business is ready to meet the demands of delivery culture. And while we're talking about it, the holidays are coming up, you guys. You know what that Dang. means? Black, Black Friday. Friday. Cyber Monday. Cyber Monday. Your, listen, we had some Black Fridays prior to ShipStation. We was in there lost. But ShipStation kept us afloat. It kept us organized. And it kept us getting them orders out. Without them, I don't know where we'd be. And you you need to start thinking about the holiday season today, yes. right now, and not waiting until later because later we'll be here before you know it. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in love. Love. That's ShipStation.com. Then enter offer code love. Love. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. Ah, Make money finish. happen. Make it happen. Okay. Next, we're going to tell you about Manscaped. This is actually something that Kevin uses all of the time. I actually use your trimmers all of the time. Don't say balls. You're going to get me demonetized. But that Manscaped is for balls. Say nether regions. My nether regions have never thanked me more than after they've been properly Manscaped. My wife appreciates the properly Manscaped nether. She's like, oh, the nethers are looking good. They they got a little fade. Mm Mm-hmm. My, my my nethers be faded out to glory. I, I used to have the Big Daddy Kane, you know, the Big Fro, you know, the civil <laughs> rights. They used to look like they were fighting the civil rights movement. 
Now they look like they're joining the military. <laughs> High and tight, low and even. <laughs> Listen, can I say this? Manscaped, don't be mad at me. Women, you can use Manscaped too. In a pinch. In a pinch. European wax are being closed. You have to go to African-American shower cleaner. All I'm saying is <laughs> that this is multi-purpose and multi-use is all I'm saying. Won't nick okay? your nethers. It won't nick your nethers. <laughs> These are facts, though. In fact, listener, right now, you can get 20% off plus free shipping when you use code LOVEHOUR, LOVEHOUR. at manscaped.com. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code LOVEHOUR. Love hour. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns by shaving that front trunk. Manscape, go to timeout. Front trunk. <laughs> All right. So uh, one of the questions is how irregular periods can impact your infertility or fertility. But I think we pretty much answered this. It's just, it's really an indication that um, you're not ovulating. Exactly. Look at me, gold star. <laughs> <laughs> the other, so there is one thing I would probably add to that though. So um, there are different causes for irregular cycles. So one, uh, PCOS is a common one, but another one is as we get older, um, our cycles do change too. And so with decreasing ovarian functions, our cycles initially start to shorten and then they lengthen. And then as they lengthen, after one year of not having a period, that's menopause. So we do start to worry about irregular cycles, like an older woman, um, like if they're, let's say 40 and coming in with irregular cycles, I'm not so much worried about PCOS as I'm more like the diminishing ovarian reserve. So, um, so those are, there are other causes too. Okay, so can we talk about this? Because one of the things uh, people were talking about, like, okay, I'm getting older, I'm nervous, and I don't think, I don't even really understand, and you keep saying um, decrease ovarian function. What does that mean? What does that look like? Why are we more, uh, or why is infertility, I don't know if infertility is the right word, but you're, you have um, higher risk associated with getting pregnant and lower chance of getting pregnant as we age. What is, what's happening in our bodies? So um, just the biology of what happens with women and our eggs. So we're born with a certain number of eggs. And actually the most number of eggs we'll have is when we're still in utero in our mom's belly. And that's about six to seven million eggs. Wait, 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 I have a question. Use just yeah. to stop you there. That yeah. is a fixed number that only decreases. Oh. It's an estimate. It can vary based on the woman's genetics. So, and then potentially other like environmental factors. So there is some varying there. Like some, a woman could be born with a lower number than another woman, you know? But, and then, but once you're born, whatever number you are assigned, that's it. That's it. And then it usually will decline over time. So, um, you know, generally we say six to seven million when we're still in utero, about 20 weeks gestation. By the time we're born, it's already declined to about one to two million. By the time of puberty, it's about 300,000, yeah. And then uh, by the time of like in our 40s, about 25,000. And then by menopause, less than 1,000. So there's gonna be that decline in numbers as we go. And um, with that- I did not know this. You're closing Listen, I honestly, this is like, I'm having a moment. I did not realize at all that whatever you're born with, like that's it. And then it just decreases from the, uh, for some reason, I thought your period was an indication that girl, we got it going one I more time. I thought they were creative once a month. Like girl, it's on and popping the parties here together, all my friends. Like I felt like that was like, everything was starting over once a month. 
No. So, and then with men, they regenerate sperm every three months. So that's why you'll see them going into like their seventies potentially and still fathering kids. Fathering kids. <laughs> but with Father women, Abraham. that's why I got an auntie that's old, that I'm older than. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I actually, I have an aunt that I'm older than too. So <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, and there's, so there's going to be that decline and there's nothing, unfortunately, that we can do to reverse that process. Um, and so I kind of describe each month to patients as think of it as your eggs locked away in a vault and each month, a certain number are released and one will grow to be the dominant one that will ovulate and the rest die off. So each month you're really losing a whole set of eggs, not just one. And in our reproductive lifespan, we only will ovulate 400 approximately, like 400 eggs in our lifespan. So you have a dozen eggs each month. Your body says, here's one. You can make it, you can make a one egg or no, no, you're not hungry. All right, throw all the eggs Oh, y'all going away. <laughs> That's yeah. what your body is doing. And then eventually your body's like, ain't no eggs. Right. And then each month, like you're not going to see necessarily huge variation each month. Right. But over the years, whatever is released, you know, that number is going to go down over time. Got it. Got it. And so you have, first of all, the likelihood, it's a miracle any of us are born. Okay. From what you're describing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the human reproductive system is not efficient by any means. I always tell that to patients too. <laughs> like Sarah in the Bible, she probably had some of this infertility stuff and no doctor. No, and no doctor. So the the likelihood first of all just naturally the likelihood of getting pregnant as you as you age decreases that's just natural biology if you're coupling that with fibroids endometriosis p oh my goodness and then there's a whole other element i haven't added to so uh, along with the decline in numbers there's also going to be a decline in the quality as uh, we get older so you know our eggs go through uh, meiotic divisions. And so that's, um, you know, ultimately the end product being the egg. So those meiotic divisions involve um, spindles that will, you know, help that separation process when we're going through meiosis one and meiosis two. So you get the chromosomes to split properly. Okay. But um, as we get older, they're made up of proteins, right? Those proteins break down, that splitting process becomes less and less efficient. And so you end up with abnormal number of chromosomes in the egg. And that's how you'll end up with basically an increased chance of miscarriage because it's kind of nature's way of selecting against um, abnormal pregnancies. And also also how why there's an increased risk of like down syndrome and things like that as we get older because down syndrome is basically having three copies of chromosome 21 where we're supposed to have only two and so it's just a reflection of that division process um, not happening um, properly as we get older that was a lot yeah. I feel like I'm so depressing <laughs> no no it's actually <laughs> I don't think it's depressing at all at least to me it's it's uh, it's it's illuminating. It's understanding because one of the questions actually is having children after 35. Why right. is it considered high risk? Right. You just said the quality of the egg. Your body's basically saying this is more likely to be an abnormal pregnancy or a pregnancy that doesn't reach um, uh, culmination. So, you know, your body is basically deciding on its own not to uh, allow that process to happen or, you know, at all. And I I just have heard that a lot of times. I didn't know what that meant. Right, 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 you know right. what I mean? I was like, why 35? But now I, that makes a lot of sense. And then as you age 40 and 45, the chances of 
a quote unquote normal pregnancy or a healthy pregnancy, your body is basically saying this is probably not likely. You know, it kind of goes to the animalistic nature of of our of us. You know, the the, the strong survive, and your body's like this person's not going to survive, then it's less likely to, you know, go to the end. Exactly. Yeah, and um, it's unfortunate that there's not a lot of you know like knowledge of this type of information. And then I'll end up getting patients, you know, that are over the age of 45 sometimes coming in wanting to get pregnant. And by that time, you know, the chances of conceiving at that age are going to be, you know, less than, you know, maybe two to 3%. And then the only option at that point is going to be things like donor eggs, like basically other women going through IVF and donating their eggs. Oh, so that oh my God, that makes so much sense. Well, because your body can, oh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just saying, so your body can carry an egg to term, but it's not producing quality eggs to carry to term. So therefore, is that why it's, you know, at that age, it's better to get a, it seems like Correct. That. Yeah. Well, it's the kind of compounding factors that both lower numbers and lower quality. Right. So yeah. both of those. And then, you know, the success rates being basically so close to, you know, zero that uh, donor eggs. And that's one of the common misconceptions you'll see in like, um, in uh, Hollywood and, you know, celebrities, uh, you know, they're conceiving over the age of 47. Do we really know that they conceived or was it really a donor? And, you know, this is, you know, contributing to the kind of like oh, false reassurance that these yeah. patients and can And now come. that because they're such visible people, yeah, we're not. You know, there's NDAs all over the place. You're just like this person did. Why? Why not me? Exactly. Oh, uh, never even crossed my mind that those might not be naturally occurring pre pregnancies. Exactly. Or you know um, that they froze eggs at a very young age. Let's say that's the only other way to really overcome that. And then you thaw those eggs, create a baby, and then you know um, put the embryo back in. So those are kind of really the only ways when, after the age of 45 it becomes so, so challenging yeah okay so when you're talking about whether it's donor um uh, you receive a donor egg donor or you froze your eggs I, i'm assuming the processes that you're talking about are either ivf or iui so ivf is what's yeah uh, the process that would be involved for freezing eggs and also with donor eggs yes can you explain what those are people have lots of questions about those Sure. So I'll start with IUI. So IUI stands for intrauterine insemination. So what it is, is basically um, the man will give us a specimen. We clean and concentrate and basically process the specimen so we can concentrate the most modal sperm in a small volume. We put What's that, that in, I think mobile. Modal, the most modal, the most, you know, moving sperm. So oh, we, modal. yeah, I was yeah. Like, I'm doing this. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we'll get the most, you know, the highest um, amount of sperm that are, you know, moving and um, we'll put that in a syringe and then it's attached to a catheter. And then we'll put that basically, we'll put a speculum in and advance the catheter into the cervix and in the uterus. And we inject that sperm at the top of the uterus. So essentially we're just getting the most modal sperm and putting them at the top of the uterus which is the closest place we can get them to, to, to find the eggs. We'll often couple this treatment with 
ovulation induction with um, like basically giving the woman medicines to help ovulate maybe more than one egg. So our goal is usually around two to three. So we could get Clomid, we could get Clomid or uh, letrozole or injections, these type of medicines that will help stimulate the ovary instead of making one egg a month, maybe we can get two to three to release just to increase the statistics of trying to get pregnant. So, you know, if there are two to three eggs in the vicinity, we get the sperm as close as we can to it. This is how, you know, an IUI cycle generally works. But success rates, after that, we don't have control. You know, it's up to the egg and sperm to still meet on their own and the embryo to implant on its own. So success rates with these cycles are in the neighborhood of about 10%, but it will vary based on um, the infertility diagnosis, the woman's age, you know, so I always kind of factor those things in when I give patients success rates. Got it. So this is kind of like uh, speed dating, where you like, <laughs> egg sperm i'ma just put sorry put y'all in the same room y'all can intermingle with one another and hopefully right. there's a connection exactly kind of increase the number of both things and put them as close together as we can so that hopefully yeah one egg and one sperm will meet got it and so but also you could wind up with twins or triplets with this i mean i don't know That's the likelihood of it happening more since why yeah but like it seems like that could be a thing are now. twins two sperm or two eggs it's two eggs, right? Twins, um, so there's a few ways. It could be two eggs and two sperm meeting, and then you have two embryos, or it could be that you have one embryo and that embryo splits, and that's like an identical Identical twin. twins, got it. Yeah, yeah. Ah, so are fraternal twins two eggs, two sperm usually? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so it's really like they could be different, you know, um, they could be born at different times, you know, siblings-wise, but, you know, they just happen to be there at the same time. <sighs> got it. Got it. Okay. When it splits, that's an identical, you know, because it's the same genetic material. Yeah. Got it. So then IUI has um, a 10%, but I would feel like this gives people, I don't know, is it less invasive than IVF, less, less expensive, less invasive? And it, it is. Or like, I feel like this is more natural, quote unquote. Yeah, it, it's um, less costly. Um, less uh, visits, less medicines, and um, so yeah, overall less invasive. And it is kind of more natural in a way because we're just all we're doing is kind of putting the players as close as we can together. After that, things are still happening naturally. Got yeah, it sounds like it's almost what the penis does during sex, just happening closer up. Yeah, closer up, and not as a result of you know actual sex at the moment. Right. With intercourse, the sperm is going to be left at the cervix. And so we're just kind of getting it to the top of the uterus. So, so higher. Giving up. it a head start. Yeah. And in theory, getting the most modal, you know, sperm in that. Got in that it. Yeah. Wow. This is, it really, this is a really complicated, so intricate dance to result in a pregnancy. And that's why I, see, I was always kind of curious of why the percentages are so low. And, and now I see why there's, there's a lot of factors that go into it that that most can't be controlled. You know, you guys are you guys being the doctors are controlling as much as you can, but you can't you can't literally can you literally inseminate an egg? So you can with IVF. Um, so oh, that's the IUI you're, you're not. Yeah, exactly. So with before IVF was invented, yes, our our ability to you know treat infertility was a lot more limited. There's only you know so much we can really control. 
Um, and then, um, so I guess that leads me to IVF and I can kind of talk about how that process works. So with IVF, the goal is to stimulate the ovaries to make as many eggs as they can grow. So with IUI, we're limiting ourselves to two to three because of the multiple risks, right? So it's a balance of increasing the chances of trying to conceive, but also balancing the multiple risks. With IVF, we're not concerned about that. We want all of them to grow. I mean, we still want to do it in a, a safe fashion. We don't want it to, you know, if there are a lot of eggs there, we, there's a syndrome called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, and that can be a complication of IVF, but it's something that we do everything we can to prevent. But um, generally speaking, we try and get all the eggs to grow. And what we're going to do is surgically remove the eggs from the body with a minor surgical procedure called an egg retrieval. And so then we'll have the eggs in the lab. And then we'd have the partner give us a sperm specimen and then we, the egg and sperm will essentially meet in the lab. There's two ways that they can meet. They can either meet with what's called conventional IVF, where you just put the egg and sperm together, a certain number of egg and sperm on a petri dish, and just let them meet on their own. And it's kind of similar to what would happen in the body, you know, because there's a bunch of sperm around, and one will be the one that fertilizes the egg. Um, and then there's something called ICSI, which stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you can actually directly inject one sperm into the egg. So kind of pick the best looking, most modal sperm and inject it directly into the egg. And then after that, once the egg and sperm meet, it's called an embryo. And then we let the embryo grow for five to six days in the lab. And it will go through all these cell divisions and ultimately it'll become a blastocyst after five to six days. And the blastocyst, there's a certain part of it where um, it's called the inner cell mass. It's kind of like a concentrated area and that's the future baby. And then the outside is called the trophectoderm and that's the future placenta. And so once it kind of differentiates that way, we're able to do genetic testing on the embryo where we basically will take a biopsy and take a few of those cells that are gonna become the future placenta send it for genetic testing and they can essentially come back and tell me um, the genetic makeup of the embryo so we can know it's a genetically normal embryo as opposed to like a down syndrome or something with an abnormality and we can also know the gender so and that's something that couples can choose to know or not know depending on their preference um, so if we're doing that we'll biopsy we'll freeze the embryo we wait for the results and then the next cycle we make sure the uterus is prepared, like there's no polyps or any abnormality in the uterus. And then we do what's called a frozen embryo transfer cycle. We prepare the uterus for a transfer um, and then put the embryo back in at the right time and then do a pregnancy test about two weeks after. So that's kind of an overall summary of it. Okay, okay. Before I ask my questions, we're gonna take a break here. All right, we've already told you guys about Manscaped and you're getting your nether regions together and what comes next. First comes love, then comes marriage. Then comes a penis then comes... in the coochie area. This is why I'm always demonetized. <laughs> so who are we here to tell you about? That's the medical term. What? Penis. It is. Coochie's not. But Coochie's penis is. not. We talking blue chew. We're talking blue chew. For some of us, sex is a way to de-stress. And if you have, listen, all of our ads today correspond. If you've already talked to BetterHelp, you got your therapist going, you've already done your manscaping, you've done your shaving, and now it's time to get it on and popping in the nighttime because it's the right time. And Blue Chew is sponsoring today's episode. Blue Chew is the first chewable tablet with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. Blue Chew, I'm going to need you guys to get your life together and come out with the Blue version for women okay get your lives together <laughs> even today come out with a version for women right 
now we've got a special deal for our listeners, bluechew.com. Uh, visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment for free. Free? When you use promo code LOVE. LOVE. All you're going to do is pay $5 for shipping. Again, that's blue. That's B-L-U-E. Just like the color. Chew.com. Promo code LOVE. Try love. it for free. Blue Chew is the faster, cheaper, better choice. And we thank them, of course, for sponsoring today's Love Hour podcast. And we know that you love them. So we thank you for supporting them because supporting our sponsors is supporting the podcast. Um, So please be sure to use promo code LOVE to ensure that they know the Love Hour sent you. BlueChew.com, promo code LOVE, de-stress. Get your get your loving on, um, and we're back. Okay, my water. hello. My question was, can your body still reject this? So a common misconception is that um, IVF can over overcome age, you know, and that oh, I can you know potentially delay. Let's say I haven't met Mr. Right, I can kind of delay you know thinking about fertility potentially, um, and then I meet Mr. Right at like forty. 45, let's say. Um, so age, uh, IVF cannot overcome age. And again, we're limited by the egg number and the egg quality. So, you know, we potentially may get, let's say an embryo, but it may or may not be genetically normal, or we could go through the process and maybe not end up with um, an embryo at the end. So with IVF, hiccups can happen at any time, in, you know, generally speaking. So you can go through the injections where we're growing the eggs in the ovaries, and we may get lower response than we would expect. Um, we could get to egg retrieval, and, you know, it's not always that the egg will release from the follicle wall, not always that the follicle's normal and has an egg in it. So we may not get as many, you know, eggs that we expect. Um, and then when we put the egg and sperm together, there's um, about a 50 to 75% uh, fertilization rate is what's considered normal. So IVF, I tell patients, is kind of a numbers game. What you, number you start off with, you know, there's going to be a decline in numbers as you go. And so the lower the number you have starting off with, the more likely it is you may not end up with your goal at the end. So, um, and IVF cannot overcome that, you know, embryo or the uh, limiting number that we're potentially starting off with or advanced stage. What exactly is the embryo? Embryo is uh, after the egg and sperm meet, it becomes an embryo. It's basically okay. that that joined egg and sperm genetic material. Okay. Okay. You just gave me a dad joke, and I'm sorry, but you did this. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> you gave me a great dad joke. What did Chris Brown's sperm say when he met an egg? Embryo. <laughs> I know you wanted to, but excuse me, miss. Saw you from across the room. I literally cannot. <laughs> uh, they're not funny but that is a clever one yeah. and i learned this from the love hour so thank you doctor <laughs> You're welcome. um okay i think we probably have like 20 minutes or so i'm trying i do have more questions um you have like 10 or 15 minutes oh do i mm-hmm. oh um oh man okay so iui melissa I- when melissa has a short circuit it means there's so much good information that she's you know ingesting and she can't properly express her excitement because she wants to ask more questions so that's i want to make sure i cover everything and i know i'm not going to um so let's just let's stay on the ivf iui thing i think for a a minute can you i I guess we kind of already discussed some of those pros and cons of each I, i i would imagine cost being a primary inhibitor for people because money 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, cover these treatments? It, it varies. Um, you know, uh, I think it's kind of getting better and there's certain states where it's, it's mandated. And so, oh, Texas, really? yeah, so Texas is not one of them, unfortunately. So, um, I do see, you know, uh, patients that do have coverage. I live, I mean, in a kind of an oil and gas, um, city. And so there's with those type of companies, there's good coverage. Um, so, um, I do see it, you know, every so often, but there are also patients that end up paying, um, you know, fully for it. Um, one of the parts of my counseling though is too, so again, it's going to really, the success rates are going to depend on the woman's or the couple's infertility diagnosis and age. So I'll go over, you know, IUI and how that works and then IVF and how that works and success rates. And I think the two, you know, part of um, the, the two main considerations are going to be the success rates and then costs. Um, and so, but it's one of those things I wish I had a crystal ball, right? So if a patient uh, wanted to do IUI and if I knew we could get pregnant there, I would definitely tell them to go there. But the reality is, is that we are limited by the success rate. It is, you know, what it is. There's only so much we can do with that. So if it's about 10%, you know, each cycle independently, there's always the possibility that we don't get pregnant, right? And then the um, the time and money we put towards the IUI could have gone towards the IVF. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those hindsight, you know, decisions. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to make these, these, um, these decisions. But I, I do tell patients that I, you know, I do encounter that where patients maybe try that. And then it's like, it's, it's frustrating. And then the other thing with IVF is that, you know, if, um, depending on the couple again, and let's say the ovarian reserve and the age is, um, you know, a good prognosis patient, you could ultimately end up with more than one embryo at the end, right? So you could, let's say, end up with like two or three normal embryos. So let's say we put one embryo back in and the success rate with each embryo. So it's a matter of getting to that genetically normal embryo stage. So some couples, you know, that is more of an obstacle to get to it. But once you get to that genetically normal embryo, the success rate is about 60 to 70%. So so let's say we put that embryo back in and let's say they get pregnant, then those extra embryos are potentially future children. So, you know, two, three years from now, when they're ready for baby number two, they come back. We don't have to go through IVF again. The point of that is to create embryos. So all we need to do is just thaw the embryo, put the embryo back in. So IVF can basically, you know, help with future family building if it's done in an early enough, you know, time frame. Got it. At, at what point or what stage do you recommend um, a couple or maybe a woman looking into infertility or fertility treatments? Because I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm a young independent woman and I'm out here trying to do everything I want to do, but you know, eventually you want to have kids, but it may be too late at that eventual point. So given the PCOS, fibroids, all of these things, at what point, what are some factors to consider for women to maybe freeze their eggs early? Sure. So I think that, you know, anytime that a woman's considering that, I think it's good to still just go ahead and see the fertility doctor just to get information. You know, I think information is power, knowledge is power, and it's always better to have that on the early side as opposed to kind of waiting, you know, too long and then it being more challenging later on, you know. Um, you know, generally speaking, we say that um, with egg freezing, if you do it, the, the younger you are, the, the better the success um, because you'll go through an idea 
IVF cycle, the more likely you are to have more eggs of better quality, as opposed to if you do it later on in life where you may go through an IVF cycle and you may have lower number and lower quality, and you may need to ultimately do more cycles to kind of help overcome that. And, um, you know, I'll review with patients too. There's um, some studies that there's a bit of a limited data with it, but there's some studies that will show you how many eggs that you get, like how many mature eggs that you retrieve and how that correlates to live birth. So, you know, after a patient goes through an IVF cycle, we'll go over that numbers, you know, we'll see if their goals are met. And, um, and so that's kind of, um, you know, the general counseling I'll do. But generally speaking, we say the kind of good age to consider it is around the age of 30 to 37, um, just because it is in that, um, you know, not too young, but not too old, kind of that sweet spot. But having said that, I think it's always good if you're thinking about it, interested in it, you know, the earlier, the better, just to go and get information, potentially get your ovarian reserve tested and kind of see where things are. I was going to say that a good idea may be, and I'm not quite sure that this is common or a thing people even know about, is just getting your ovarian reserve tested just to ensure it may give a signal that something's off and it may be more difficult later on, or maybe you have fire, whatever is going on. Um, and you can get that indication a lot earlier than later. Is that a test people can just like, hey, Miss, Miss OBGYN, can you do this test for me? You can, um, you can go to the OBGYN and get it. I, or you could get, go to the fertility specialist. You know, I think the fertility specialist will just have a little bit more, you know, expertise with the follicle number and the AMH and also give you more information on what the process involves. So I'd probably, you know, recommend seeing a fertility specialist, but you could do either. Got it. Is there um, a point, you know, at which a couple has been trying to have kids for X period of time where you're like, you're probably at a point where you should go see a fertility specialist. Yes, great question. So um, if cycles are regular, um, generally we say after, if you're under the age of 35, you can try for a year. Success rates, so if everything's normal uh, and the patient doesn't have any uh, infertility, a normal success rate of conceiving each cycle is about 20 to 30%. So again, because you know the human reproductive system is not an efficient way to get pregnant and there's a lot of things that have to be in the right place at the right time. So after a year, about 85% of them should have gotten pregnant. And yeah. so, you know, that's the 15% of patients that will um, struggle with infertility. Now, if you're 35 years old or older, we say six months because we're concerned more about the ovarian reserve and that decline, exactly. So we don't want a year to go by because we worry about what impact that may have, you know, with treatments and, and, um, and time. Now, there are certain caveats to that. So if patients having irregular cycles, they shouldn't be waiting. They need to go ahead and see a fertility specialist because in theory, they're not ovulating. So it doesn't even make sense for them to, you know, continue sure. to try. Um, and then, you know, other kind of like red flags in the history, if a patient has uh, very severe pain with periods or pain with intercourse, these may be symptoms of endometriosis. So that might warrant getting seen earlier. Um, if there's already some known male factor, um, you know, like if there's basically already something known that's abnormal in the infertility, you know, um, diagnosis possibilities, then they should get, go ahead and get seen. But assuming everything's normal, cycles are regular, usually six months for 35 and older and one year for under the age of 35. That's really great information. I think that will um, certainly help people. And you didn't say some rent. You said one year and six months, child. I got that. Okay. Yeah. So and then I'll, I'll actually add one more thing. So at, over the age of 40, I would say actually right away, because we, we don't even want them to wait six months. We want them to come in right away. 
Because girl, when people say your eggs are drying up, it has a whole new meaning right now. Like, this is what's happening. Like, this is terrible. I know. Oh my gosh. I think, I mean, I think it's great that you're talking about it because it helps just get that fertility education and awareness out there. And so, you know, um, so yeah, I think it's it's important to talk about. I have a question. It may not, it, it might be silly, but I'm curious. When they say freeze your eggs, are they literally freezing them? Are they like stacked in like freezers and like like people's names on them? <laughs> so we, they're like microscopic. So they're in these little straws, uh, essentially, uh, little catheters that we call straws. And they are in liquid nitrogen tanks. So they're all um, oh, in really? liquid nitrogen. Yeah. And how long can they be frozen? So that's a good question. Uh, there's limited data on that from what data we do have. There was um, you know, a few studies that I've looked at, eggs that were stored for longer duration and shorter duration, and they show no difference in outcomes. So from what data we do have, we have no reason to believe they couldn't be stored for you know, a long period of time. Is that 20, 30 years or like until the end of the human race? <laughs> um, I would try periodically, <laughs> periodically time. <laughs> I mean, I would say probably, you know, several years, like, you know, 10, 20 years for, wow. for what we can, you know, um, uh, estimate from, from what data we have. Yeah. And are those usually harvested in your between 20 and 30? So it depends. It depends when the woman, you know, comes and decides to to do go through the egg freezing process. But um, usually, um, the women that are that we see that are considering it around that thirty to thirty seven age group. But having said that, we see younger women. We see women outside that age range too, and we'll evaluate everybody that presents, you know, with um, that desire and check ovarian function, um, check their their follicle count. And um, then I counsel them on realistic expectations. And then, you know, if they're older, for example, they may or may not choose to proceed, you know, just kind of, I just want patients to have good information on success rates and expectations. And as long as they understand that, then, you know, we can try. Yeah. I wanted to say something because I, um, when, what I was saying earlier, I wanted to make sure that this doesn't become, I don't want people watching this episode going through things to be sad. I want <laughs> them to feel um, instead armed with information. Yeah. I think that's the point of this episode is that you don't have to go through this feeling like you don't know what's what. You don't have to go through this feeling like you're broken. Um, a lot of this is very common. A lot of this is uh, very prevalent. I think the statistics say one in four women mm -hmm. um, will go through have an infertility issue and then like one in eight couples. Correct me if I'm wrong now. Okay. Yeah, it's usually we say one in eight and um, there were some studies that looked at um, women uh, like professional women, women in medicine, and, and it was more like one in four because, you know, we're more focused on our education and our training and we end up delaying, you know, thinking about fertility, but, um, but generally speaking, it's one in eight. One in eight. So um, it's something that's very, very common. And with all that was said, there are options available and you don't have to go straight to like, I need the most expensive IVF. Yeah, yeah. Like you can go through and check off fibroids and PCOS and um, yeah, um, endometriosis. And like, you can go through those things. And I think that assuming that it's just like fibroids once you remove those the likelihood of getting pregnant is like actually like it goes back to quote unquote normal right 
So yes and no. I mean, it would depend on the infertility workup for that patient. You know, if it was an older patient where I'm worried about ovarian reserve, you know, that would change that. But if it was a younger patient who had a polyp and we remove it, and let's say she wanted to, you know, try again and there were no other infertility factors, yeah, then that would be reasonable. So it just, it depends on the whole picture. Got it. So the other really great thing about this as well is that, um, you should find yourself a doctor. And I would even say at this point, well, going, obviously you need to have an OB that's important, or I'm sorry, a gynecologist, that's really important, but go find yourself a specialist because their whole work is specializing in this. And this is a very specific level of gynecology, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. We do um, three additional years of training. So we do our OBGYN residency and then we do three years specializing in reproductive mm -hmm. gynecology and infertility. Mm -hmm. Are we so, Yeah. Yeah. So we're, um, we're, you know, trained and specialized for it. Yeah, wow. definitely. So for anyone out in, let's say the Houston area, I don't know if you're accepting new patients, but people always come to me afterward, like, can I please get that doctor's information? <laughs> so if you are accepting um, new um, patients and also really quickly, um, Dr. Catherison's uh, Instagram and YouTube has really great videos and infer that's actually how I found um, all the IVF doctors that I've had on the show and I follow quite a bit because they present a lot of really great information. So if you're interested, can you give people your um, your practice name again and then I'll link your Instagram and YouTube information below, but you can give that out as well too. Sure. So, um, so again, my name is Anu Katharisen, and I am at the Center of Reproductive Medicine in Houston, Texas. And um, I am on multiple social media platforms, um, as Melissa mentioned, for Instagram. Um, I'm also on TikTok, and uh, I do Facebook and um, uh, and YouTube. I try and do so. I do um, videos, fertility educational videos as uh, intended to be a patient resource to help walk patients through the fertility journey from when to see a fertility specialist to what the workup involves to treatment. So um, that's available also on YouTube. And I also have a website. It's a new and MD and um, all the links to all my social media platforms are there along, along with the videos there. Yeah, your website's actually really great too. It's um, very easy to navigate. Um, excuse me. So I definitely recommend um, Dr. Katharisen, for as a resource, I think patient resource is probably one of the best ways to describe what you do because it really is. And she does like these really cute TikTok videos with her family. Is your husband a doctor as well? He is. He's a neurosurgeon uh, in at Baylor. Mm -hmm. Oh, y'all just went to school school. <laughs> That's a whole other <laughs> video. But yeah, so uh, he, so we met in med school and um, he uh, and I, so our training didn't align in terms of, you know, where he ended up wanting to go and, and me. So part of our journey was actually, we were separated for three years during our training. And um, I had a kid during that time. That was my first, my first um, child. And so I was a single mom for 10 months and um, went through pregnancy alone. So, and now we live together. So now I'm like super grateful. I you just like far from Houston. Waco. Yeah. You said you uh, there. Sorry. Oh no, Baylor. So that's the undergrad. So the med school is in Houston. Oh, okay. I was like, y'all still ain't living together. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're together now. So I'm so got it, got it, got it. But um, but yeah, his training was nine years, mine was seven. So nine it was years. Yeah. 
You know what, though? If somebody's going to open my brain up, I'd rather you do the nine. Listen. I'd rather you do the nine if you're going to op- open up my brain. Because you messed up with my brain, ain't no care. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Wow, we should have y'all on the love hour for a totally Man, different topic. Listen. Yeah, we, have, we have three kids now. There are five. Yeah, five, four, and two and a half. I love when parents have to remember their kids. So we got, okay, now he is. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> you know they always be changing ages. Listen, yeah. yeah. they're they time is flowing. They're like like where where did five years pass? That you know these kids are like so crazy. grown already. It's it is it's crazy. <laughs> well, thank you so much yeah. for your time. I really appreciate this. this. Was a lot of really great information. And Chad, if I didn't learn nothing else, I learned that my eggs are drying up now. But I'm oh, good. I have one more question. I've heard that you can, like, fallopian tubes can come unto, untied. You have your tubes tied. Is that true? So there is a procedure called a tubal reversal where it's um, done usually with microscopes and you can um, kind of cut away the, the previously cut part of the tube and, and uh, put together the remaining parts. But it's not, there are certain... Um, uh, qualifications or criteria that you need to meet in order to have that done. Like for example, let's say the woman's again, like older with lower ovarian function, or if there's a severe um, sperm, you know, issue or male factor, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to put the tubes back together because now you're putting your back back at kind of natural conception at that age, right? So um, an IVF is usually recommended. I didn't go on uh, over this before, but like IUI, you, you have to have open tubes or uh, and a good number of sperm in order to be candidates for that. So right. if there's a severely low number of sperm or if the tubes are blocked, you know, the only way to conceive would be with IVF. So um, so if you have one of these like severe male factor or um, really low ovarian function, it wouldn't make sense necessarily to put you to put you through that procedure, right? With risk of surgery and everything, if your, you know, natural conception rate is still going to be low. So um, in addition, if the patient has had, let's say multiple surgeries and there's a lot of adhesions that will make it more difficult to put the tubes back together, or if the patient has severe endometriosis because of that scar tissue, it's going to be hard to put the, t- the tubes back together. So there are other things that factor in. So, but yes, we do see patients um, that are interested in that. And we talk to them about both options and then we have to see what, what they're a better candidate for. Is there any, I'm going to assume the answer is no, but I'm going to ask anyway, is there any way for you to be someone's doctor virtually? So we are doing a lot more telemedicine now with, with COVID. So um, I definitely could see patients, you know, um, through telemedicine. In terms of the actual treatments and things, they would have to come to Houston. And, you know, actually my sisters went through egg freezing and they did it at my practice. So they um, were able to do the blood work and, um, you know, the initial process from afar because neither of them live in Houston. And then they came just for the IVF cycle and then they, you know, went back home and they were uh, managed by one of my partners, so not me. But um, so it's, it's feasible to do you know you could do um, some of the things in telemedicine and blood work there and then just come for the treatment and, and um, go back I, I only ask because I would feel if I were in this situation I watched this episode I'd be like I want her <laughs> <laughs>
I feel like I should have said. Not a partner. I want you. Listen, and so I asked for those people that maybe you know might be interested if that would be a possibility. So okay, thank you again so much for taking time out on y'all. We filming this on a Saturday. We are so dedicated, but I'm out there getting practicing doctors. Okay, they do the things in real life Monday through Friday and see real patients. Okay, so Saturday was when she was available, so that's when I'm available. So thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday morning to um, be with us and go over all of this really rich, great information. I will again include all of the information in the bio for you guys to follow her. And again, check out all of her videos. I think they're, they're quite helpful. Um, that's it. That's all. Until the next video. Bye. Thank you guys. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.